Part 4 of Offenses Against Oneself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Read by M. L. Cohen, Cleveland, Ohio, July 2007. Offenses Against Oneself, Pederasty, by Jeremy Bentham, Part 4. Causes of this Taste I have already intimated how little reason there seems to be to apprehend that the preference of the improper to the proper object should ever be constant or general. A very extraordinary circumstance, and undoubtedly is, that it should ever have arrived at the height at which we find it to have arrived. The circumstances is already an extraordinary one as it is. It would be much more so if it were common under equal importunities for the improper object to meet with a decided preference. But such an incident there is every reason, as I have already observed, for not looking upon as likely to become otherwise than rare. Its prevalence, wherever it prevails to a considerable degree, seems always to be owing to some circumstance relative to the education of youth. It is the constraint in which the venereal appetite is kept under a system of manners established in all civilized nations that seems to be the principal cause of its deviating every now and then into these improper channels. When the desire is importunate and no proper object is at hand, it will sometimes unavoidably seek relief in an improper way. In the ancient as well as the modern plans of education, young persons of the male sex are kept as much as possible together. They are kept as much at a distance as possible from the female. They are, in a way, to use all sorts of familiarities with each other. They are kept as much as possible from using any sorts of familiarities with females. Among the ancients, they used to be brought together in circumstances favorable to the giving birth of such desires by the custom of exercising themselves naked. On the present plan, they are often forced together under circumstances still more favorable to it by the custom of lying naked together in feather beds, implements of indulgence and incentives to the venereal appetite with which the ancients were unacquainted. When a propensity of this sort is once acquired, it is easier to conceive how it should continue than how it should at first be acquired. It is no great wonder, if the sensation be regarded as it were naturally connected with the object, whatever it be, by means of which it came to be first experienced. That this practice is a result not of indifference to the proper object, but of the difficulty in coming at the proper object, the offspring not of wantonness but of necessity, the consequence of the want of opportunity with the proper object, and the abundance of opportunity with such as are improper is a notion that seems warranted by the joint opinions of Montesquieu and Voltaire. Quote, the crime against nature, says the former, will never make any great progress in society unless people are prompted to it by some particular custom, as among the Greeks, where the youths of that country performed all their exercises naked, as amongst us, where domestic education is disused, as among Asiatics, where particular persons have a great number of women whom they despise, while others can have none at all. End quote. Quote, when the young males of our species, says Voltaire, brought up together, feel the force which nature begins to unfold in them, and fail to find the natural object of their instinct, they fall back on what resembles it, often, 
For two or three years a young man resembles a beautiful girl, with the freshness of his complexion and the brilliance of his coloring, the sweetness of his eyes. If he is loved, it is because nature makes a mistake. Homage is paid to the fair sex by attachment to one who owns its beauties, and when the years have made this resemblance disappear, the mistake ends. And this is the way, pluck the brief spring, the first flowers of youth. Quote, it is well known that this mistake of nature is much more common in mild climates than in icy north, because the blood is more inflamed there and opportunity more also. What seems only a weakness in young Alcibiades is a disgusting abomination in a Dutch sailor or a Muscovite settler. End quote. Quote, Pederasty, says Beccaria, so severely punished by law and so freely subjected to tortures which triumph over innocence, is based less on man's needs when he lives in freedom and on his own than his passions when he lives with others in slavery. It draws his strength not so much from a surfeit of every other pleasure as from that education which begins by making men useless to themselves in order to make them useful to others. In those institutions packed with hot-blooded youth, Natural vigor, as it develops, is faced with insurmountable obstacles to every other kind of relationship, and wears itself out in an activity useless to humanity, and which brings on premature old age. End quote. Whether, if it robbed women, it ought at all events to be punished? The result of the whole is that there appears not any great reason to conclude that by the utmost increase of which this vice is susceptible, the female part of the species could be sufferers to any very material amount. If, however, there was any danger of their being sufferers to any amount at all, this would of itself be ample reason for wishing to restrain the practice. It would not, however, follow absolutely that it were right to make use of punishment for that purpose, much less that it were right to employ any of those very severe punishments which are commonly in use. It will not be right to employ any punishment, one, if the mischief resulting from the punishment be equal or superior to the mischief of the offense, nor two, if there be any means of compassing the same end without the expense of punishment. Punishment, says M. Bakaria, is never just so long as any means remain untried by which the end of punishment may be accomplished at a cheaper rate. Inducements for punishing it not justified on the grounds of mischievousness. When the punishment is so severe, while the mischief of the offense is so remote and even so problematical, one cannot but suspect that the inducements which govern are not the same with those which are avowed. When the idea of the mischievousness of an offense is the ground of punishing it, those of which the mischief is most immediate and obvious are punished first. Afterwards, Little by little, the legislator becomes sensible of the necessity of punishing those of which the mischief is less and less obvious. But in England, this offense was punished with death before ever the malicious destruction or fraudulent obtainment or embezzlement of property was punished at all, unless the obligation of making pecuniary amends is to be called punishment, before even the mutilation of or perpetual disablement of a man was made punishable other than by simple imprisonment and fine. Friends, it was the custom to punish it with death so early as the reign of Edward I. But on the ground of antipathy. In this case, in short, 
As in so many other cases, the disposition to punish seems to have had no other ground than the antipathy with which persons who had punishment at their disposal regarded the offender. The circumstances from which this antipathy may have taken its rise may be worth inquiring to. One is the physical antipathy to the offense. The circumstance, indeed, were we to think and act consistently, would be of itself nothing to the purpose. The act is to the highest degree odious and disgusting, that is, not to the man who does it, for he does it only because it gives him pleasure, but to one who thinks of it. Be it so, but what is that to him? He has the same reason for doing it that I have for avoiding it. A man loves carrion. This is very extraordinary. Much good may it do to him. But what is it to me so long as I can indulge myself with fresh meat? But such reasoning, however just, few persons have calmness to attend to. This propensity is much stronger than it is wished if it were to confound physical impurity with moral. I pass without examination from the literal use of the word impurity to the figurative. From a man's possessing a thorough aversion to the practice himself, the transition is but too natural to his wishing to see all others punished to give in to it. Any pretense, however slight, which promises to warrant him in giving way to this intolerant propensity is eagerly embraced. Look the world over. We shall find that differences in point of taste and opinion are grounds of animosity as frequent and as violent as any opposition in point of interest. To disagree with our taste and to oppose our opinions is to wound our sympathetic feelings and to affront our pride. James I of England, a man more remarkable for weakness than for cruelty, conceived a violent antipathy against certain persons who were called Anabaptist on account of their differing from him in regard to certain speculative points of religion. As the circumstances of the times were favorable to the gratification of antipathy arising from such causes, he found means to give himself the satisfaction of committing one of them to the flames. The same king happened to have an antipathy to the use of tobacco, but as the circumstances of the times did not afford the same pretenses, nor the same facility for burning tobacco smokers as for burning Anabaptists, he was forced to content himself with writing a flaming book against it. The same king, if he be the author of that first article of the works which bear his name, and which indeed were owned by him, reckons this practice among the few offenses which no sovereign ever ought to pardon. This must needs seem rather extraordinary to those who have a notion that a pardon in this case is what he himself, had he been a subject, might have stood in need of. Philosophical Pride This transition from the idea of physical to that of moral antipathy is the more ready when the idea of pleasure, especially of intense pleasure, is connected with that of the act by which the antipathy is excited. Philosophical pride, to say nothing at present of superstition, has hitherto employed itself with effect in setting people a-quarreling with whatever it is pleasurable even to themselves, and envy will always be disposing them to quarrel with what appears to be pleasurable to others. In the notion of a certain class of moralists we ought, not for any reason they are disposed to give for it, but merely because we ought, to set ourselves against everything that recommends itself to us under the form of pleasure. Objects, it is true, the nature of which it is to afford us the highest pleasures we are susceptible of, are apt in certain circumstances to occasion us still greater pains. But that is not the grievance, for if it were, the censor which is bestowed upon the use of any such object would be proportioned to the probability that it could be shown in each case 
of producing such greater pains. But that is not the case. It is not the pain that angers them, but the pleasure. Religion We need not consider at any length the length to which the rigor of such philosophy may be carried when reinforced by notions of religion. Such as we are ourselves, such, and in many respects worse, it is common for us to make God to be, for fear blackens every object that it looks upon. It is almost as common for men to conceive of God as being of worse than human malevolence in their hearts as to style him of being of infinite benevolence with their lips. This act is one amongst others which some men, and luckily not we ourselves, have a strong propensity to commit. In some persons, it produces, it seems, for there is no disputing a pleasure. There needs no more to prove that it is God's pleasure that they should abstain from it. For it is God's pleasure that in the present life we should give up all manner of pleasure, whether it stands in the way of another's happiness or not, which is the sure sign and earnest of the pleasure he will take in bestowing on us all imaginable happiness hereafter, that is, in a life of the futurity of which he has given us no other proofs than these. This is so true that, according to the notions of these moralists and these religionists, that is, the bulk of moralists and religionists who write, pleasures that are allowed of are never allowed of for their own sake, but for the sake of something else which, though termed an advantage or a good, presents not to anyone so obviously, and to them perhaps not at all, the idea of pleasure. When the advantage ceases, the pleasure is condemned. Eating and drinking by good luck are necessary for the preservation of the individual. Therefore, eating and drinking are tolerated. And so is the pleasure that attends the course of these functions, insofar as it is necessary to that end. But if you eat, or if you drink otherwise than beyond what is thus necessary, if you eat or drink for the sake of pleasure, says the philosophy, quote, it is shameful, says the religionist, Quote, it is sinful. The gratification of the venereal appetite is also by good luck necessary to the preservation of the species. Therefore it is tolerated in as far as it is necessary to that end, not otherwise. Accordingly, it has been a question seriously debated whether a man ought to permit himself the partaking of this enjoyment with his wife, when from age or any other circumstance there is no hope of children. And it has often been decided in the negative. For the same reason, or some other which is not apparent, for a man to enjoy his wife at unseasonable times in certain systems of laws has been made a capital offense. Under the above restriction, however, it has been tolerated. It has been tolerated, but as the pleasure appeared great, with great reluctance, and at any rate not encouraged, it has been permitted not as a good, but as a lesser evil. It has indeed been discouraged, and great words offered in a future life for those who will forego it in the present. It may be asked indeed, if pleasure is not a good, what is life good for, and what is the purpose of preserving it? But the most obvious and immediate consequences of a proposition may become invisible when a screen has been set before by the prejudices of false philosophy or the terrors of a false religion. End of part four.